If you join me in Bible study today, please open up to Galatians chapter 3. Our starting point is verse 23, but I want to start in 21 to get the flavor of this section. Verse 21 says, Is the law, the Torah, the commandment, statutes, and judgments of God then against the promises of God? His answer, certainly not. Does God speak out of both sides of his mouth? No. So if there, were, if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. Well, if salvation is not through works of the law, it's by what? Faith. It's always been by faith. It's never been by the works of the law. There have been many who taught that it was by the works of the law, but they were, what's that word? Wrong. They were wrong. Verse 22, but the scripture... What is scripture according to 2 Timothy 3.16? It's every word that comes out of the mouth of God that got written down for us. But the scripture has confined all under sin. Is that in the Old Testament? Does it say all we like sheep have gone astray in Isaiah 53? Yes, it does. So whether you look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, you know what we are? We're sinners. Has confined all under sin that the promise by faith the Messiah Yeshua might be given to those who what? Believe. That word believe is the same equivalent word as that one back in Genesis 15 verse 6 when Abram believed God and God accounted him for righteousness. That word believed means that Abraham believed that God would do what God said. He believed that God said what he meant and meant what he said. Do you believe that? I do. Well, I go to Deuteronomy 6, I sure will. Yes, Deuteronomy chapter 6, let me get there, says that if we were to be able to keep all of the commandments, but can we? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse which in particular? If we start at 24, and the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is in this day, then it will be righteous for us if we're careful to observe all these commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Righteousness, right standing before God, yes, if we keep the commandments, but why do we keep the commandments if we keep those? Because of our faith and our love for him. No one ever kept God's commandments because they hated him. I mean, that's almost the doctrine of some churches today. That if you won't break God's commandments, it's because you have no faith in him. You don't believe he will save you anyway. Well, given the scriptures, okay, never mind. So let's go back to Galatians. Remember, Messiah himself said, these are the commandments. If you'll do them, you can live by them. But who's going to keep them perfectly? No. What happens when you break just one? But Zechariah and Elizabeth were blameless before the Lord. What's the difference between blameless and righteous? Blameless in that situation is going to be the Hebrew word tamim, which means without spot or blemish, which means like David. Anytime they've committed a sin, they've repented of it and turned back to God. They did not continue walking in sin. Wouldn't that be the same thing as righteous? Yes. So what's your point? I'm missing it. Why did they keep God's commandments? It was because of their faith. 
So it was never a works-based religion, never once. All, the only time anybody ever kept God's commandments was because they, what always comes first? Go back to Deuteronomy. Love comes first. Yep, go back to Deuteronomy. We, we'll go to Deuteronomy 30. You can go many places in Deuteronomy. If you're truly keeping all the commandments. You can't help but see Messiah and see our need yep. for Messiah. So. Yep. Start in verse 15 of Deuteronomy 30. See, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. In that, I command you today to what? Love the Lord your God. To walk in his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments that you may live. But what came before obedience? love born out of faith it's always been that way if you have faith in God if you love God what's the natural inclination of the heart then is to be obedient if you're a loving child of a loving father do you get up in the morning and say let's see how many ways I can hurt my father today no Yeah, you can't separate. If you truly love, then you will be obedient. What did Messiah himself say? Go to the book of John, chapter 14. If you don't obey him, why is it? We'll start in verse 15, just for grins. If you love me, comma... Keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. A little while longer, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, you live also." At that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. What does that mean? What if you don't keep the commandments? Then it means you do not love him. Or you've forgotten him. Or you've forgotten, which is the same thing. You can't love someone you've forgotten. Since he who loves me will be loved my, by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Yeshua answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. So you're right. You cannot separate the love of God from the obedience to the commandments. Love leads to obedience. Does love ever lead to disobedience? Not according to the scriptures. Does that help? Well, that didn't answer the righteous part of it. So how do you get to be righteous? Right standing before God implies that you are walking upright in his commandments, statutes, and judgments because of your faith. Yeah. Okay, back to Galatians. And this topic actually came up last Friday night while Daniel was talking and teaching us. So as we start with verse 23, it's all about the pedagogos. 
Verse 23 says, but before faith came, faith has always been. What's it mean before faith came? It means before we came to faith. Before we came to the point that we believed in God and accepted his commandments and decided to follow him out of love. Before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. Kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Messiah that we might be justified by faith. Do you see that word tutor? That is nowhere near correct. What is a tutor? A tutor is someone who teaches you. The pedagogos was not a teacher. Not by any stretch of the imagination. It's PG-13, but let me tell you what the pedagogos was. In the area of Galatia, Turkey, Greece, Rome, that whole area, it was infested with homosexuality, and that homosexuality was often foisted upon the children through pedophilia. So if you were from a wealthy family and you had a young boy, you assigned one of your most trusted servants to that child as a bodyguard. And that child went nowhere out of the house without that bodyguard until they were the age of maturity. So that bodyguard was there to protect the child's physical well-being as well as his morals. So it was to protect the child while he was too young to protect himself. In Deuteronomy 28, let's go back to Deuteronomy 28. What did God say would happen to us if we turn our backs on God? And walk in sin. Deuteronomy 28 beginning in verse 15. But. And it's not but. So just scratch that out. It's just and. And it shall come to pass. If you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God. To observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes. That I command you today. That all these curses will come upon you. And overtake you. Cursed shall you be in this city. And cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket in your kneading bowl. What kind of basket? Fruit basket. Where you gather in the fruits and vegetables, right? And your kneading bowl. What's a kneading bowl? I need a bowl? No, it's where you make bread from the wheat. Cursed shall be your basket in your kneading bowl. I mean, there's not going to be enough wheat to make bread. Cursed shall be the fruit of your body. That is your children. They'll be sickly and die. What were the names of um, Naomi's two sons in the book of Ruth? Sickly and wasting away. Yeah. Cursed shall be the fruit of your body and the produce of your land, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flocks. Cursed shall, be, you, shall you be when you come in. Cursed shall you be when you go out. There will sin on you, cursing, confusion, rebuke, and all that you set your hand to do until you're destroyed and until you perish quickly. Because of the wickedness of your doings in which you have forsaken me. And it goes on and on and on. So one of the purposes of the law was to protect us, not only from God's wrath and judgment, but from the other nations. For what did God say if we would be obedient to him? Do we have to fear the other nations? No. Will they try and come in and take the land? No. It's for our protection until we get to want, until we come to faith. When we come to faith, do we need an external set of commandments written on tablets of stone? Or when we come to faith, are the Torah commandments written on our hearts and minds? That we 
don't need an external document to tell us not to murder. We know inside we don't want to murder because God said thou shalt not do it. So a pedagogos is designed to protect our morals and our physical persons until we're old enough to make right decisions for ourselves. So the law was external until we got saved in which it becomes internal. And now we don't need an external pedagogos to protect us. We have the one written in our hearts and upon our minds. Because lest we forget, let's go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 8. We talk about the new covenant, we usually go back to where? Jeremiah 31. But it's also here in the New Testament. It says the same thing. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. For this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my what? My laws, my Torah in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Did the law go away? No, quite the opposite. It went from external to internal. So the pedagogos, the protection, doesn't need to be external now because the protection is internal. We have God's laws within us that we walk in them. At least if we're saved by faith, that's the way it should be. So back to Galatians chapter 3. Why would the translators translate pedagogos as tutor? Hmm. Because it's the most common meaning of the word today in the dictionary, right? It's the way that the Bible used it, so that's the way they define it now. Okay. The Greek, the Greek here might have the meaning that you're giving, but the common usage is the person who teaches music as a pedagogue and the person who teaches history as a pedagogue. You see that all the time. Right. But, but you if you look in the Thayer's Greek lexicon, it will tell you yeah. this is not a teacher. What you don't see is the word is the Greek. Right. Unless you live in Greece. Right. Okay, so back to Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. Therefore the law was our tutor, no, our protector. And it says to bring us to Messiah, but do you notice to bring us is in what kind of letters? Italics, which means it's not there in the original. So therefore the law, the Torah, was our protector until we come to Messiah. That we might be justified by faith. And then when we get justified by faith, then the law is written in our hearts and minds. If it truly is written on our hearts and minds, then we cannot walk away from it. We cannot turn aside from God. We cannot go back to a lifestyle of sin. That's why if you turn up to 1 John, 1 John wrote some words that are, that are really hard the first time you read them. Maybe the 17th time you read them. Look at 1 John chapter 1. Verse 5. 
This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. What does he mean by walk in darkness? Does that mean we won't ever commit a sin? No, it means we will not continue in sin. We cannot continue to practice lawlessness. If we do, the scripture says we simply do not know the Lord. It says even more over in 1 John chapter 3, verse 6. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Again, John is talking about a lifestyle. If you will not repent, if you will not turn from your sin and repent and turn back to God, he says it's because you do not know him. Which sounds a lot like 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. You see what John's trying to tell us? is that if the law is written upon our hearts and minds, it's inconceivable that we would want to continue walking in a lifestyle of sin. Once you realize my sin caused Messiah to be nailed to a tree, how could I ever want to deliberately walk in sin again? You just wouldn't. Okay, back to Galatians 3. I'm sorry, I'm getting preachy. I got a number one out here. Let's see. So it's probably time I'm getting preachy. Okay, Galatians chapter 3, we're up to verse 25. But after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. This makes it sound like the law doesn't apply anymore. What it means is we don't need an external guardian. We have an internal guardian in our heart. And verse 26 begins with what? For. What does for mean? means because, right? Because. Because you are all sons of God through faith in Messiah Yeshua. Once you become that child of the true and living God, do you want to sin against God? No. If you sin against God, it's not your normal practice. And it's something that's going to convict you and you're not going to be able to live with yourself until you confess it and turn away from it. You just cannot continue to live in it. Let's go to the book of Acts, chapter 4. Acts, chapter 4. Verse 12. Paul's trying real hard to tell us in Galatians that nobody ever got saved through keeping commandments. And Acts 4.12 is one of my favorite verses in Acts 4 between verses 11 and 13. It says, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Why is that so important? 
There is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. There's a whole movement out there in the Hebrew slash Messianic Jewish movement that says you must pronounce the Tetragrammaton or you're not saved. You must be saved in the name of those four Hebrew letters, yod heh vav heh. What does this scripture say? This is talking about verse 10, Yeshua. For there is, sal- there is, nor is there salvation any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2, Ephesians comes after Galatians, but not by very much. Verses 8 to 9. For by grace you have been saved through what? Through faith. Why does it then say, for by grace you've been saved through faith? Isn't God obligated to save us if we have faith? The answer is no. God's not obligated to do anything for us except the wages of sin is death. All God owes us is death. It's only by his grace and mercy, as Daniel taught about over the last couple weeks, that we are saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And the point, yes? Would you go to Joel 2.32, going back to that name of the Lord? Let's go back to Joel 2.32. Joel 2.32. It shall come to pass, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What's the name of the Lord? That's the, it's Yeshua. That's the covenant name, though. That is the Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh. Yes, that's Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh. Who is Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh? That's Yeshua. True. So what's the name of the Lord? The name of the Lord is Yeshua. So did those people in that day have to call on Yeshua? The answer to that is yes, whether they knew it or not. They were calling upon the yod heh I suspect. Remember that the only time that name was pronounced was once a year by the high priest in the Holy of Holies in a whisper. They were not They were not calling out that name. The answer to that is no. It's not scriptural. I wouldn't say that. Go to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. I know where you're going there, but that's you don't know that that's not just a misprint that happened early on. In biblical Hebrew, how do you know how many syllables are in a word? Count them. No. You count the pronounceable vowels. How many pronounceable vowels are in the Yod Hey Vav Hey? None. How do you pronounce a word in biblical Hebrew with no vowels? You can't. That's our assurance that it's not just rabbinics, that the name was only spoken once a year in a whisper in the Holy of Holies. So is that the only word in Hebrew that's made up of all unpronounceable vowels? There are no vowels, only consonants. Well, you said it's unpronounceable. There are no vowels in the Tetragrammaton, they're only consonants. Four Hebrew consonants. Okay, and you're saying there are no vowels in any words in Hebrew. 
You just said that, I thought. No, I did not. You said there are no vowels. In the Tetragrammaton, there are no vowels. So how do you pronounce a word in Biblical Hebrew with no vowels? You cannot. Every other word in the scriptures has the vowel points added to it, but that one does not. Why does that one not have the vowel points? Because it wasn't to be pronounced. That's why they didn't put them. So let's give an English example. J-M. How do you pronounce J-M? Is it Jim? James? Jamie? We have no idea. Could be Jim or Jim or John. <laughs> or, or who knows? But, but that's the point. They put the vowel points in every word except for that one because it wasn't to be pronounced because of Exodus chapter 3, which you said you're well familiar with. So let's just go on back to Galatians. We're in chapter 3. Verse 26. For you are all sons of God or children of God through faith in Messiah Yeshua. It is that faith that gives us the ability to become children of the true living God. And we have another four. For as many of you as were baptized in the Messiah have put on Messiah. What's that mean, have put on Messiah? means you have taken on the characteristics of Messiah. He rose to life eternal. We live life eternally through him. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. What's it mean, are being transformed into the same image? It means our personality or character. Our personality or character. We should be living more and more like Messiah all the time then why doesn't the scripture say, for instance, Paul, why didn't he say, imitate me as I also imitate Messiah? That's 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. John put it this way in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. What did he say? 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. So that raises the question, how did Messiah walk? Did he walk in sin? Well, how do we know? He followed all the commandments. He followed all the commandments. How do we know? Only a, only a lamb without blemish could have been sacrificed. Only a lamb without blemish could have been sacrificed? Well, that's just an argument. And since he wasn't just a, an animal lamb, uh, obviously... Yeah. Or we could turn to John chapter 15 and look at his own words. Because he tells us in no uncertain words. Verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. 
How do we know he kept the commandments? Because it says so. Which is what you guys were saying too. And God said you were well pleased And God said I am well pleased. How many times? At least twice. I can think of once in Matthew 3 and once in Matthew chapter 17 at the transfiguration. 1 Corinthians 12. First Corinthians 12, verses 12 to 13. Edmund was making mention of this in the comments that you guys couldn't see earlier. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members are of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Messiah. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. We are one in Messiah. Romans chapter 13 continues that theme. Romans chapter 13 verse 14. Begins with but. Shouldn't start a sentence with but, so I start the verse before. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Yeshua the Messiah and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. So to put on the Lord Yeshua the Messiah is to take on his nature, his character, to have that same desire to walk uprightly before the Lord. So if, what if Satan said to you, I will give you all these kingdoms of the world if you'll bow down and worship me. What should we say? Majinoito, right? Ain't no way. Every word. Every word. Back to Galatians chapter 3. Verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Messiah Yeshua. Does it mean there's not male and females? No, it means there's only one way of salvation. Whether you were born a Jew or a Gentile, whether you were born in slavery or whether you were born free, whether you were born a male or a female, there is only one way, and that's in Messiah Yeshua, for you are all one in Messiah Yeshua. And he explains that more in Ephesians 2. We've read these words many times, but the Lord hasn't come yet, so we'll read them yet again. It says, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time, what time? Before you were saved, you were without Messiah, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Right there you got to stop. If you used to be strangers from the commonwealth of Israel, what are you now? Part of. Think back to 
Leviticus chapter 23 into Exodus chapter 20 and all those chapters back in the Old Testament that talk about commandments to the children of Israel. Another way to say that is the commonwealth of Israel. So you're not aliens anymore. You're grafted in like the wild olive tree into the cultivated tree. Used to be strangers from the covenants of promise. How can they say that we were strangers from the new covenant? Let's go back to Hebrews 8 again. I mean, I hate to burst anybody's bubble, but let's read what the Bible actually says. Verse 10, for this is the covenant that I make with the, what? The house of Israel after those days. This is the new covenant. It's not made with the church. It's not made with the Gentiles. It's made with the house of Israel. So how do those of us born Gentile get into the new covenant? We're grafted in by what? What's that word? Faith. Saved by faith, grafted in. We become part of the house of Israel. Or in Ephesians 2, he calls it the commonwealth of Israel. We're no longer now strangers from the covenants of promise. We are partakers of the covenants of promise. But one of those covenants is a promise of the land. What are we reading in Ezekiel 47 about the Gentiles in the kingdom that are saved? They get what? They get grafted into whichever tribe they want to be grafted into. And that's the portion of land where they take their inheritance. So even the land covenants get shared amongst all the believers. It goes on in verse 12. Having no hope without God in the world. Does that mean now that we're saved by faith we have hope? Absolutely. Does that mean we now have God? Yes, we do. It says, but now Messiah Yeshua, you who once were afar off, have been brought near by the blood of Messiah. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one. The both refers to what? Jew and Gentile, right? Jew and Gentile, one and Messiah. And has broken down the middle wall of separation. How did he do that? That was in Acts chapter 10. What if God had not shown that vision to Peter? What would have happened when those three Gentiles knocked on the door? Peter would have said, go away. It's not lawful for me to go with you. Go away. But what did God say? Keep a finger here. Go back to Acts chapter 10. What did God say? Don't call what I've cleansed common. But it also says in Acts chapter 10, verse 34, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, that's between Jew and Gentile, but in every nation, whoever, what? Fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Do you fear the one in which you have no faith? No. So it implies that faith comes first. Faith is followed by love, which leads to obedience, which leads to righteousness. He was actually shown that during his lifetime. He did. Because he went, he healed the 
The Samaritan woman at the well. Remember the Gentile woman up in Lebanon? He said, oh, I've not come to this commonwealth of Israel. She said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the table. And the Lord granted her wish, right? Yeah, so back to Ephesians 2. Messiah himself demonstrates what? That anyone who comes to him by faith is acceptable. The disciples were slow learners. Yes, I would agree. I think he chose them because they were not the college-educated, Talmud on the tip of the tongue types, because they wouldn't have listened. But the common people, yeah. So verse 15, back in Ephesians 2. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity. Remember, enmity is hatred that separates. Paul in verse 11 says the Gentile believers are being looked down upon by the Jewish believers, and that's not right. The enmity, the hatred that separates Jew and Gentile went away. It says that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. You know the NIV omits contained in ordinances? So it just says he abolished the law of commandments. That word ordinances is dogma. It's never used for God's commandments, statutes, and judgments, only for man-made rules and regulations. So, so it's created himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. That is, if we are now one and the same in Messiah, how can we hate each other? How can we not accept each other? Verse 16, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. He says, stop it. Stop arguing. Stop fighting. Hmm. He must not have had children. Siblings fight, don't they? He says, stop it. He came and preached peace to you who were afar off, that's the Gentiles, and to those who were near, that's the Jews. But he preached the same message of peace. For through him we have both have access by one spirit to the Father. What spirit is that? The Holy Spirit. Now therefore, therefore means because all this is true. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Yeshua and Messiah himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Back to Galatians chapter 3. Verse 29. I love this verse. And if you are Messiahs, if you are saved by faith, then you are Abraham's seed. What does the word seed mean? Descendant. And heirs according to the promise. That promise being referred to there is salvation by faith. But in Ephesians, Paul said, and all the other covenants of promise, they are as applicable to you and I as they were to Abraham himself. You want to shock most church people today? Tell them Abraham was a Gentile. And I'll go, what? Yeah, Abraham was a Gentile. 
He was an honorary Jew, according to the Jews. <laughs> an honorary Jew, okay. I'm sure he would have taken that okay. He got his honorary degree. <laughs> yeah. Now, chapter 4. So what did we learn from chapter 3? That salvation is by faith. And there's no other way. So what is the problem in Galatia? Others have come up after Paul and said, no, no, salvation is by circumcision. And what has Paul said? No. Salvation is by faith, and it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. There's only one way, and that's Messiah. Somebody quote for me John 14, 6, quick. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Are there many spokes on the wheel? All religions are heading to the same point? No. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now I say that the heir, who's the heir? The child of God. That's you and I. You are the heir being talked about here. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, this word, this word child is napios in Greek. Don't a lot of people call diapers nappies? It comes from this word napios. It means a baby, not of age. Now I say the heir, as long as he's a child, that his, he needs to be taken care of does not differ at all from a slave, though he's master of all. Meaning, who has to listen to the father? The child or the slave? They both do. So how are they different? We're going to read on. But first, let's look at this word, napios. Go to Matthew 21.16. Matthew 21.16. Matthew 21, 16. We'll start in 15 to start this sentence. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna. What's Hosanna? Hoshiana. Save, please. To the son of David. What did they mean by the son of David? They meant the Messiah. So they're crying out, save us please, you are the Messiah. And the scribes and Pharisees, the chief priests, they were indignant. What does indignant mean? Angry because of pride. Their pride's hurt. He said to him, do you hear what they're saying? Yeshua said to him, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nurse, nursing infants you have perfected praise? That word babes there is napios. And you see it's talking about people that are so young they must be carried, they must be fed, they must be, have their diapers changed. Okay, the nappies. Look at 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. Verse 11. When I was a child, this is Napios. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child, which means I was dumb as a rock. I think that's what it means anyway. 
I thought as a child, when I became a man, I put away childish things. So they're talking about when we're little children, unable to care for ourselves. Back to chapter 4 of Galatians, we do what we're told. Because we don't know how to do anything else. Verse 2. But it's under guardians and stewards, talking about those pedagogas, to protect them. And the stewards look after their nature. We could say nursemaids. Until the time appointed by the father. Oh, that's interesting. The father gets to decide when the child is old enough that he doesn't need a babysitter or a nanny anymore. Does that mean the child doesn't get to decide for themselves? I don't have to listen to you anymore. They must not have been Americans. Yeah, but that's exactly what it means. If God let us decide when we were old enough to do what we wanted, we wouldn't be ready to handle the responsibility. So verse 3 says, even so we, Paul includes himself, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. By when we were children, it means before we got saved. Before we had the knowledge and experience to realize that Yeshua is the Messiah and salvation is by faith. We were under bondage, under the elements of the world. He says, essentially, we were slaves. That's what he says. Let's go to Matthew chapter 23. We were slaves. Why did we obey the Father? Slaves obey out of fear. He's going to hurt us if we don't obey. Why do children obey? Out of love. Matthew 23, starting in verse 1. Hello. Come on in. I don't normally come here. Is it okay if I just sit in? Of course. We just open up to Matthew chapter 23. Verse 1. And we're going to go all the way down through verse 28 because I think it's very, very instructive. It says, Then Yeshua spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, What's that word saying? It's what follows is a quote. The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. But what was Moses' seat? Is that where they read the Torah? That's where they read the Torah. So when they're sitting in Moses' seat, reading the scriptures, they're reading from the Torah. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that is that which they're reading from the Torah, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works. They didn't translate that word quite in the best way. But it means don't do according to their man-made rules. So observe that which they read from God's commandments, but don't go beyond them to their man-made rules and regulations. As for they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear. What did they do? They took God's commandments and added to them tens of thousands of commandments that God didn't command. What did the Lord say in 
Deuteronomy 12. Don't add to or take away from. So where they added all those tens of thousands of rules we call fences. He said, they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works, that is following their man-made rules, why do they do this? It says they do it to be seen by men. To make their phylacteries broad. What's a phylactery? That's the tefillin, the little box with scriptures that they bind around the arm and around the forehead. Why do they do that? To literally fulfill the law. To literally fulfill Deuteronomy chapter 6. When we get to Deuteronomy chapter 6 tomorrow, we'll talk about that. It says, but all the works they do to be seen by men, they make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. Talking about the seat. They make really long seat, which represent the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. So the people will think they're really, really righteous. Verse 6 says, they love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, which means they want to be honored by men. They want people to show them honor and reverence. Greetings in the marketplaces to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. What does Rabbi really mean? Teacher? No. What is Rav? Great. What is the E on the end? My. So, my great one. It's a, an obeisance thing. But you do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Messiah, and you are all brethren. That's why I prefer to be called what? He who sits up front. I'm not any different from any of you guys, but somebody's got to lead the discussion. Do not call anyone on earth your father. Oh, what did the Pope do? What does the word Pope mean? I forget. It's... Means father. He got that for himself. Yeah, but it means father. For one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teacher, for one is your teacher, the Messiah. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself, what's it mean to exalt yourself? To put yourself on a pedal, to be honored, to be served, to be worshipped even. Will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. But what do you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites? Remember that word hypocrite just means actor. One who plays their role, pretending to be something they're not. For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. That is a shocking statement. How do they shut up the kingdom of heaven against men? How do they keep people from going in? By their false teachings, by their teachings, you said by the teaching wrong. by teaching them wrong. All the burdens they laid on people actually turned them away from God. They just they, they couldn't do it, and they gave up. And what does the Lord say about a religion based upon man-made rules and regulations? He said it's in vain. So the people think by following all these rules and regulations promulgated by the scribes and Pharisees that they're honoring God and they're being righteous and yet God says it's vanity, it's empty, it's of no value.
I, I wonder how other people relate to this that are listening. My early exposure to the church, and it was several churches, it wasn't one. Mm -hmm. It was trying to learn their list of you don't chew gum, you don't dance, you don't smoke, you don't drink, you don't, 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 don't. You don't play cards? Ooh, yeah. And uh, these guys today that wear earrings, they couldn't go to my churches. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. <laughs> because they had all their own rules and regulations. Yeah. And yet if you say, where is this in the scripture? They say, there's the door. Never dawned on me to ask about the scripture. <laughs> I was too busy trying to memorize it. Yeah. Yeah. I remember a man I used to work with that grew up Baptist in a very strict Baptist denomination. And one Sunday afternoon while his dad was watching football, he went off to the lake and fished for a few minutes. Said when his father caught him, he beat him almost to death for fishing on Sunday. While well, his dad was actually watching television on Sunday. Yeah. We make up so many rules and regulations, but what did God say in Deuteronomy 12? Do not add to or take away from his commandments. But verse 9, verse 13 here goes on to say, For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. So those that are searching for a way in, you literally, physically keep them from going by the bad teachings. Talking about today, so many. Yes, in fact, they say you're prohibited from repenting if you repent, it's because you lack faith. What does the scripture say? Go to the book of Acts, chapter 2, where the church begins. The very first preaching on salvation in Acts, chapter 2. Verse 38. Then Peter said to them, Repent. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Yeshua the Messiah for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What was the very first word out of his mouth? Repent. Go back to Matthew 23 because we haven't finished. The words are read. He's trying to get across to us as to the disciples. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And people say, but he didn't tell us what it was. Yes, right here. Verse 14, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses. How do they do that? They devour widows' houses. They accept bribes to put widows to death so they can confiscate the property. And for a pretense, make long prayers. What's it mean for a pretense? Are they honestly pouring out their hearts to God? No, they're pouring their hearts out for people to see and go, oh, look how righteous you are. It says, therefore, you receive greater condemnation. There are people who say there's only one level of punishment. Is that what this says? You receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. This is the second time he said, well, and it's not the last. And if you're not a horse, woe is really bad. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. What's a proselyte? That's a Gentile convert to Judaism, to their way of thinking. And when he's one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. 
This unfortunately answers the question I get so often. Okay, so people have been misled by the false teachers, but God won't hold that against the people that were misled, right? What does this say? Verse 16, Woe to you blind guides who say, Whoever swears by the temple, it's nothing. Whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obliged to perform it. Where would they get a rule like that? They made it up. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it's nothing. Whoever swears by the gift that's on, he's obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. That word fools is a hard word. Because what does the scripture say? Fool says in his heart, there is no God. So is he saying you believe in God, you're faithful to him, but you made a couple boo-boos? No, he says you don't even know God. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it, which means you better keep it, right? If you take an oath on the name of God and you break it, what did you do to God's name? You made it common. What did God say in the Ten Commandments about taking his name in vain, making it common? He said, don't do it, right? Verse 22, and he swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin. Is that a bad thing? No, that's proper. And have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. Uh-oh. Justice and mercy and faith? Those aren't little matters, are they? Salvation is and has always been by faith. But they don't point people to God. They don't teach them to have faith in God. What about mercy? What about justice? It says, these you ought to have done, that is to pay tithe of mint, anise, and cumin. Those are the smallest of the agricultural products. Without leaving the others undone. So they focused on the small things in the Torah and ignored the huge things. Did the church do the same thing in the 4th century? They didn't teach people it's okay to murder in the 4th century. They didn't teach people it's okay to commit adultery. But they said, you can't keep Sabbath. You can't keep the appointed times of the Lord, which teach the first and second coming of Messiah. And you can't eat just clean foods. What are the three things that God hits most often in the Old Testament that the people were failing to do? Keep the Sabbath, keep the festivals, and avoid the unclean foods. Hmm. Verse 24, blind guides. You strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. 
which means you're worried about the little things, but not the things that are really the most important. I didn't count them, but you probably did. We're back to another woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. What's he talking about? Is he really talking about cups and dishes? He's talking about their hearts. Cleanse the heart. Turn the heart toward God in love and faith, and the rest will find its way. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. What does he mean by whitewashed tombs? When the people would travel up to Jerusalem for the festival time, it's during the rainy season. And what do people want to do if it starts to rain heavily? Get some shelter, run into a cave. What if they run into a cave that's full of dead men's bones and now become unclean? They can't go to the festivals. They can't go and worship God in the temple. So the scribes and Pharisees would send people out to whitewash the tombs that are used as burial tombs to warn people not to go in. But once they're whitewashed, they look good and clean, but they're not. And this is what Messiah is describing the scribes and Pharisees as like. They look to the people as if they're highly religious and worshiping God with their whole hearts. But inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Verse 20, even so you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. What is lawlessness? They're breaking the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. So they have the people bowing down and kissing their feet, thinking they're so high and mighty and religious. But God says they're anything but. Go to Romans 6, verse 15. Romans 6, verse 15. Just today I heard a preacher talking about the fact that once you walk down that aisle, repeat after the pastor and he dunks you in the pool, that now you're righteous before God. It doesn't matter what you do now. Is that what the scripture says? Let's read. What then? Shall we sin? What is sin? Sin is lawlessness. 1 John 3, 4. Because we're not under law, but under grace. That is because we're not saved through keeping commandments, but we're saved by the grace of God by faith. And his answer, there's another, certainly not. Do not know that to whom you present yourselves, slaves or servants, it's the same Hebrew word, to obey. You are that one's servants whom you obey. Whether sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. Again, just close your eyes and think back to the Garden of Eden. God said, do not eat from it. The serpent said, yeah, yeah, go eat from it. And to whom did they listen? Whom did they obey? 
They obeyed the serpent. How did Satan get to be the god of this world? Because the one to whom you listen, you're that one's servant. So it's whom you obey, whether a sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. Is Paul talking to unbelievers here? No, he's talking to believers, people who claim to be saved by faith. And he says, if you continue to walk in sin, where are you leading to? Where's it taking you? It says to death. Or if you're walking in obedience, you're on the path to righteousness. It says, but God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. What was that form of doctrine? That salvation is by what? By faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. Having been set free from sin, you became slaves or servants of righteousness. So how do we walk once we get saved? Do we continue in sin that grace may abound? Mage anointo. That's verses 1 and 2. Verse 19, he says, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness, that is before you got saved, and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now, what's changed? You got saved by faith. Present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. next one would just get me into trouble. So let's just go on back to Galatians. Galatians chapter 4. Verse 4. When the fullness of the time had come. That's an odd statement. What fullness of the time? Time for the appointment. Time for the appointed time to be fulfilled. For Messiah to be born. Did God have a plan from the beginning? Messiah is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. What's that mean, born under the law? He was born into a group of people that believed salvation was earned, right? Through man-made works. How did people get so far off since that was never God's plan? Let's go to Philippians chapter 2. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Let this mind be in you, which also was in Messiah. What's that mean? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Messiah Yeshua. Does Paul want us to think like Messiah thought? Yes. Who being in the form of God, that's John 1, 1, right? Beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Messiah, who is God from all eternity, stepped out of heaven, 
and was born in a body of flesh and blood through a human woman. Why would he do that? To be our kinsman redeemer, our savior. He can't be our kinsman redeemer unless he's a kinsman. He had to be born of flesh and blood. Verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Oh, that verse says a lot. What does he mean he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death? Did he have to go with the soldiers? Or could he have called 10,000 angels? And yeah. So why did he go to the cross? He chose to so that he could die for you and for me. So that he who knew no sin could become sin for us. And even the death of the cross, do you realize what a humiliating death that was? I know this song says on a hill far, far away. But the Romans didn't crucify at the top of hills in remote locations. They crucified at the gates of the city at the road level. And they stripped people completely nude, whether man or woman, to shame and humiliate them. Nail them to the tree, and they stayed there in the sun, in the heat, sometimes for three or four days before they died. Why was it Messiah died the same day he was nailed to the tree? He was the pastor and he had to die there. But remember the scourging that Pontius Pilate did? He was beaten 39 times with a whip with pieces of bone, glass, and metal in it. To where literally his organs would have been hanging out of the body. How much blood loss do you think there would have been, Doc? That's why he died so quickly. What's that, Edmund or Richard? Did he also not eat or drink? Definitely didn't drink. Uh, well, I mean, the, the yeah. juice or, or he didn't wine. eat or drink, no. But his death was surprisingly quick. Remember, even the Roman soldiers were surprised he died so quickly. It was because he'd oh, been yeah, beaten was, so badly. Not, I was just, that's why I was saying it seemed like that he had not eaten or drank anything for a day or two before as well. I, I, could, I could be wrong on that. Yeah, he'd eaten before. Remember, he had the Passover meal with his disciples. Well, yeah, that's true. Yeah, okay. Thank you. Yep. So again, the verse we're coming from is Galatians 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah wrote about how many years before Messiah was born? Yeah, more like 700 years. He wrote for a long time. But it says in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, you know these words in Hebrew, right? Ki yelled you That's from the song Vayikrashamo. For unto us a child is born. Notice the C in child is capitalized because it's referring to our Messiah Yeshua. Hundreds of years before his birth, it was told that he would be born as a baby. That word yelled means a baby born of a woman. Unto us a son is given. That word is not a baby. 
That's at the second coming. Child is born first coming, unto us the son is given second coming. And the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called the Wonderful Counselor. And what's the next phrase? El Gibor, Mighty God. Gibor means more than mighty. Means a mighty soldier, a mighty man of war. Everlasting Father is not translated correctly. It's Father of Eternity. That is, he's the creator of all things. And the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Verse 7 is not possible if we're just talking about a flesh and blood human being. No flesh and blood human being can reign without end because death is the end of us all. So verse 7 lets us know that this child is not just a human child, but is also the child of the true and living God. And you guys know, because you've heard me teach this so often, of the increase is the Hebrew lamarbe. And the maim in lamarbe is a final maim, which indicates, according to the ancients, the closed womb of a virgin. So while rabbis today might disagree, Rabbis at the time of Messiah knew Messiah would be a virgin birth. So also at John chapter 1, we said in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. That's John chapter 1. Let's just look at it with our own eyes. And we'll go through verse 5 and then down to 14. So beginning in John 1, 1, the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. And him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then in verse 14, And the word became flesh that is born of human woman, just as Isaiah 9, 6 had prophesied. And dwelt among us, that is, he tabernacled among us. He lived and breathed and worshipped and taught and lived and died. And we beheld his glory, the glorious of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Wouldn't you like to read the original in Hebrew in John because it says in the beginning was the word, the word was with God. There's more than one way to say that. The Hebrew might have read in the beginning of the word was in God. Psalm 2. Psalm 2 was written by David 300 years before Isaiah began to write. And David wrote about Messiah. Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verse 7. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. 
Ask of me and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Who is this that the Lord is talking about? You are my son. Messiah, how do you know? He's capitalized. Turn up to the book of Hebrews. Yeah. Turn up to the book of Hebrews. Can you tell I'm in a how do we know mood? <laughs> Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you're my son, today I have begotten you. And also in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 5. So also Messiah did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So the scriptures tell us for sure that that's referring to Messiah. God bless you. Now, how do the rabbis get around this verse? They don't read Oh, they do. About Psalms or Hebrews? About Psalm 2. You are my son. What is the Hebrew word for son? Bain. This is not Bain. This is Bar. This is Aramaic. And they say people back in those days, they didn't use borrowed Aramaic words. Now turn to Proverbs chapter 30. Written by who? Solomon, David's son. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 4. Who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what's his son's name if you know? What's that word son there? Bar. The very same borrowed Aramaic word. Used by the son of David who wrote Psalm 2. Go back to Genesis 3.15 which is called the Proto-Evangelium. It's the beginning of the gospel. It's where the Lord first told us that Messiah was going to come. Genesis 3.15 We read in Ephesians 2 about enmity. Here's the first mention I can think of in the scripture where we see the word enmity. Referring to the serpent, God said, and I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Who is the seed of the woman referred to here? That's Messiah. Who is your seed? Referring to the offspring of Satan. Interesting. And then in Luke. Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 describes the birth of Messiah. Born of woman just as the prophets of old foretold. 
Luke 2, beginning in verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. They had from 8 BCE to 6 common era. 14 years to get it done. Verse 2, the census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So that's why we know which registration it was. Saul went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Where did Joseph live? Joseph lived in Nazareth. So does he go to Nazareth to be registered and taxed? The answer is no. It says, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So why was Joseph in Nazareth? He was a stonemason working on that great Roman amphitheater and Zipporah. But that was not his original home. He was a traveling worker. So he had to go back to Bethlehem, where his house was, because he's of the house and lineage of David. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife. What does it mean, a betrothed wife? means he's gone to her father's house, presented the bridal contract called the ketubah. Her father agreed to the terms. They call her in, give her a cup of wine from the bridegroom, and when she drinks from the cup, they are betrothed. It's not like an engagement today, because engagements can be broken. In those days, if you wanted to break a betrothal, you had to give her a bill of divorce. So it was a stage of marriage, but not one that allowed cohabitation. Once she drank from in a cup, then he would go back to his father's house and build onto the father's house the bridal chamber. What did Messiah say in Matthew, or no, in John chapter 14? In my father's house are many mansions. Those are the bridal chambers he's building onto the father's house. So they're betrothed, but they have never cohabitated. Which is odd then, because it says in verse 5, who was with child? So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. How is she with child if she's never known a man? This child is from the Holy Spirit. That's right. Verse 7, she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Did she give birth in a barn amongst the animal manure? No. She gives birth in the sukkah. The manger is the place where they store the food in the sukkah. Sukkah, that being that temporary dwelling that all the Jewish people stayed in at the Feast of Tabernacles. Now that we're in the same country, shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. So you know it's not late December because it's too cold in those fields to keep their flocks at night. It's around September to October. Those shepherds in the particular fields where they are are Levites. And the flocks that they're keeping track over or keeping watch over are the ones to be sacrificed in the temple. So it's in the shepherd's field at a place called Migdal Eder, which is at Bethlehem, 
where Messiah is born in a little sukkah. Emmanuel, God who is dwelling amongst men. Verse 9, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Why were they afraid? Hey, if angels came in here and showed their full glory, we'd be afraid too. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of what? Great joy. Great joy joy reminds us of which of the festivals? Tabernacles, where they dwelt in sukkahs, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Messiah the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. What kind of a sign is that? They wiped, they wrapped all the babes in swaddling cloths. They just didn't put many of them in a manger. Yeah, they're just not all lying in a manger, which is the food box of a suka. So this would not be hard to find. Yes, Brad and Penny. Before the, the, when swaddling cloths was from Zechariah, or they were Levitical swathings, you know, striped blue Levitical type fabric. He was in. Is that true? Nope. I don't know where I got that. <laughs> what tribe is are, are Joseph and Mary from? Judah. Judah. Okay. Judah. Okay. Yeah. The swaddling cloths were used as undergarments back in those days. And also, if the baby died, they would then be used as the burial cloths. So having a babe wrapped in swaddling cloth was no big sign. Laying in a manger in a sukkah, that was the sign. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Goodwill toward men. That's part of the ancient Sukkot liturgy. Did you know that? Yeah. So it was when the angels had gone away. That the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem. To Bethlehem? Where are they? They're in the shepherd's field. Where's the shepherd's field? It's just outside Bethlehem. It's between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. And see this thing which has come to pass which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. That's an important clue whether you realize it or not. Who was king in Israel at that time? Herod. Herod was so paranoid that he killed most of his own children. Caesar said it's better to be a pig in the house of Herod than one of his children because at least he won't eat the pig. And Caesar was supposed to be his friend. So if these angels are making known all around that Messiah has been born, what would Herod have done? And let me ask this. Where was Herod's castle? Do you know? It's called Herodian. It's at Bethlehem. That's where Herod's castle is. So... According to the Christmas stories we've been told, the wise men come when Messiah is two years old and Herod has not heard about the birth of Messiah. 
But what does verse 17 say that the shepherds did? They made widely known the birth of Messiah. Which is your first clue that maybe not all the children's stories we learned as a child were correct. Verse 18, And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, as it was told them. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, so how old is he in verse 21? Eight days. Eight days. And the shepherds have already come and gone. Where do you do the circumcision of the child? Back in those days, not Jerusalem. At the temple. Nope, not the temple. At the synagogue. At the synagogue. His name was called Yeshua, which means salvation. The angel told his mother, you shall call his name salvation, for he shall save his people from their sins. So it's the name given him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now when the days of her purification were completed, according to the law of Moses, were completed. How, what are the days of her purification according to the law of Moses? Forty days. Forty days. So how old is he in verse 22? He's 40 days old. They brought him to Jerusalem. It's only five miles, give or take, from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. To present him to the Lord. Is that the commandment, firstborn son, has to be presented to the Lord, 40 days old? As it's written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Is that what is required by the law? It's what it's required from the very poor. This tells you Joseph and Mary were very poor people. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem, his name is Shimon, which means hearing. This man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, which means he's a prophet. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. When the parents brought in the child Yeshua, how old is the child? 40 days. To do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your Yeshua, your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles, that's from Isaiah, and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken to him. Then Shimon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. What was that a prophecy of? His death, his, crucifix his crucifixion, yeah that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and lived with her husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years. So she gets married, lives with her husband for seven years. She's been a widow for 84. She's what we would call really old. 
who did not depart from the temple but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming to, in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke to him, spoke of him to all those who had looked for redemption in Jerusalem. So they performed all things according to the law of the Lord. They returned to Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. So how old was Messiah when they go home to Nazareth? He's 40 days old. If the wise men came when he was two to the city of Bethlehem, what would they have found? Nothing. Bunch of sheep in a field. Bunch of sheep in a field. Which means what? Don't believe everything you were taught as a child. Okay. Back to Galatians. Boy, that was a long Ibex trail. But it was because, what does it say in verse 4? When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And notice how it stressed in Luke 2. They did everything as required by the law. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was dedicated to God at the temple on the 40th day. Then they go home. They're poor people. How many poor people go on a two-year vacation? Yeah, not even then. Back to the scriptures, Galatians. How much time's left? Oh, not much. Oh, Verse 5, to redeem those. What does it mean to redeem? What does that phrase literally mean? It means to pay the debt we can't pay to buy us back. When we've sold ourselves into slavery, we could buy ourselves back if we could. But when we can't, our nearest kinsman who has the ability and the desire can buy us back. Who could have set us free from our sins but Messiah? The answer is no one. No one. To redeem those who were under the law, that is, who were trying to be saved through the works of the law, which was not possible, that we might receive the adoption as sons. The adoption of sons comes only by what? What's that five-letter word? Faith. That redeem, that word redeem. Let's go back to Galatians 3.13. Messiah has redeemed us from the curse of the law. People keep telling me, Wayne, Christ redeemed us from the law. Is that what this says? It says he's redeemed us from the curse of the law. The curse of the law is the wages of sin is death. He died in our place. He didn't redeem us from the law, but from the curse of the law. Go to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, what are these things, starting at verse 3? Fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, etc. What do we generically call all those things? Sin. sin. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of sins, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. You mean if our friends are living in sin, we, we can't go jump in with them? 
That's what it says, isn't it? How about Colossians chapter 4? Does it tell us something different? Colossians chapter 4, verse 5. says, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Does that mean it's okay to play in sin if our friends are? No, it does not. What's this adoption that we're talking about? That's in Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 15. And we're going to start in 14 for context. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba doesn't actually mean Father. Av means Father. Abba means daddy. It's a more personal, more intimate term than just father. And Romans 8.23 adds to this. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. By we who have the first fruits of the Spirit are talking about those who were first saved, the apostles, etc., including the Apostle Paul. He says, even we are waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. The day that the trumpet will blow and Messiah will say, come up hither, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Back to Galatians Chapter 4, verse 6. One more verse. And because you are sons or children, it's the same thing. In biblical Hebrew, you refer to a mixed gender group in the masculine. So wherever you see sons, it means children. God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So here, the spirit of his son is a reference to the Holy Spirit. The scripture calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Messiah, the Spirit of His Son. It's all trying to make us understand that there is one God and only one God. And the Holy Spirit within us it should make us cry out, Abba, Father. And in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, in what some people call the Lord's Prayer, some people call it the model prayer. But what did Messiah tell us to call God? Verse In this manner, therefore pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. How do we get to the point that we can call the Lord God in heaven our Father? The answer is when we are saved by faith. Through the shed blood of our Messiah Yeshua who died for us. 
and we've run out of time, we'll pick up next week, Lord willing, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 7.